South American soccer, an in-depth look at the action across the whole continent, providing you with a tactical, analytical and critical view supported by Pinnacle's unrivaled odds. This is South American Soccer Insights. A controversial week of World Cup qualification as we reach the halfway point in the marathon that is Convol qualifiers. We look back on an interesting week of games, plus look ahead to some huge Copa Libertadores and Copa Sudamericana semi-finals coming this month, plus take a closer look at things going on right now in Argentina. Welcome to South American Soccer Insights, a brand new soccer podcast brought to you by Pinnacle, delivering you all the latest from South America. I'm Peter Coates, and it's a pleasure to be joined by two of the most knowledgeable guys when it comes to football in South America. Firstly, my good friend and colleague from Golasso Argentina, but also, of course, from World Football Index and numerous other publications, Tom Robinson, how are you doing, Tom? Yeah, very good. Looking forward to, to start this new venture with, uh, with you two bastions of the uh, South American game in English and uh, yeah looking forward to discussing some some very interesting games on and off the field. Yes indeed and of course our man in Medellin also one of World Football Index's team a real authority on Colombian football and of course his views on young players on the continent and the biggest competitions which we'll be getting into can be found in a myriad of places. Mr. Simon Edwards, great to have you here with us, Simon. And I'm sure you can better plug than me where you can find a lot of your work. <laughs> yeah, thank you for the invitation. Um, I'm really happy to be part of this project uh, with, with Pinnacle. Uh, it's going to be really interesting to talk about South American football, you know, obviously World Cup qualifiers. We're going to talk about the Libertadores as well as try to give you guys, share some of our enthusiasm for the leagues around South America as well. So looking forward to it. In terms of myself, you know, I work for the official platforms of the Copa Libertadores and the Copa Sudamericana. I was also the editor of the content for the Copa America. So, yeah, hopefully I can bring some insight in terms of the national teams and also the club teams in the region. So looking forward to getting into it today, guys. Yeah, perfectly placed to talk about the subjects that we're going to talk about. Well, we'll get straight into it, guys, in terms of the big conversation over the last week in South America, which is, of course, World Cup qualifying there was one big storyline that I no doubt will touch on because most of the English media certainly focused on that rather than maybe the actual qualification process. But we're now more or less at the halfway point. We've had nine games, eight for two of the teams. We'll get into that. Um, but we're starting to see a bit of a clearer picture of the table and who will be going from South America to Qatar at the World Cup in 2022. Um, Tom, I'll, I'll come to you first in terms of what we've seen so far? Because certainly when we look at the league table, we're seeing a couple of teams start to strike out on their own. And those are reflected when we certainly look at the pre-World Cup World Cup odds in 2022. Surprisingly, maybe we see with Pinnacle, Brazil as the favourites for the 22 World Cup at this very early stage. Argentina is fourth favourites behind only France and England from the European side. So what's your sort of summary of where we are so far in South America and those two teams particularly? Yeah, I don't think it's any real surprise that both Brazil and Argentina are the, the two unbeaten sides. Obviously, the fact that uh, that controversial almost game between them may have ended one of their runs there. But I think we're, we're seeing certainly Brazil doing what they've done for a while now and just grind out games. It's eight wins from eight only two goals conceded. They, if you look at just 
purely the statistics and, and the results on paper, it's it's pretty ominous the way they're marching towards the World Cup. So you can understand why they're one of the favourites, along with their you know great pedigree at, at the World Cups. So maybe that's part of what's influenced that. I mean, certainly you think they're it's hard to really get a real gauge where they would stand maybe at the World Cup because they've got so many or so few limited opportunities to play against the real top quality of, of European football that it, you end up getting one or two games to judge them on like the Belgium game from the last World Cup. So as to whether they're right up there and ready to ready to challenge, I'm not 100% sure just yet, but certainly they're going really well. And it's and as for Argentina, you know, the country you and I both know well, it's it's one of the easier qualification campaigns for them, Touchwood, um, so far, because they're, you know, they're getting those wins when you'd expect them to now when they're not slipping up like they have done in previous years. And and definitely you're seeing the big two in South American football pulling away and, and being the ones that realistically you know, for my money at least anyway, are probably the only two who've got a real shot at the World Cup, even if putting among them are the very favourites, might still be a little way off just yet. Yeah, certainly that is reflected when we look at those World Cup odds, obviously some way out from Qatar with those two and then a long way back, Uruguay and Colombia joint the same odds, but some way back behind the rest of those European clubs or European nations that we'd expect to see there, the likes of Spain, Italy, Germany, Belgium, you mentioned. Um, Simon, Tom was saying there about this Brazil side having this ability to almost grind out results. Historically, we often think of Brazil as being all about the, the sort of the glamour and this sort of champagne football, but it's not necessarily the way that we've seen Chiche's Brazil playing. Um, but when you look at their qualifying process, eight wins from eight, the only team obviously with that perfect record so far. We'll wait to see what happens with the game against Argentina, of course. Um, but 19 goals scored, two goals conceded. I mean, regardless of what happened at the Copa America a short while ago, Brazil very much still the team. Yeah, you look at the quality of Brazil and it's all built around a very, very strong, solid base. You know, they've got two excellent goalkeepers. The, the central defenders are very strong. The fullbacks are decent. Uh, maybe right back, there's still a question there. Danny Alves still with a shout of, uh, of getting in the Brazil first team, which, which is a little bit interesting. But generally, you know, it's a very, very strong defence. Casemiro in front. Um, kind of one of the big questions for Brazil is who is their number nine? I don't think Chiche is quite settled on a, on a number nine still. Gabriel Barbosa got some minutes and obviously in South American football, and we'll talk about him when we speak about Flamengo, I'm sure he's, he's a great goal scorer. But is he good enough to go to a World Cup as your starting number nine? I, I have my doubts. Um, he's obviously tried Gabriel Jesus. He's looked at a few different players. But perhaps that's the kind of big question for Brazil. And, you know, you think about Brazil over the years with the great number nines they've had. It's interesting that, that perhaps the way that players are developed in South America, and particularly in Brazil, it's more the wide forwards, you know, who are cutting inside where they have so much depth and quality. Um, perhaps they don't have that great number nine, but, you know, they're, they're not short on goals. And generally what they will do is they'll get two goals and they'll win 2-0. Um, we saw that across the Copa America, looking very comfortable until that, that final against Argentina in most of the games. But it's a very professional, efficient Brazil. It's Chiche's Brazil. Chiche is a, is a manager we've seen in South America play very pragmatic, organized, disciplined football first and foremost. And he's brought that to Brazil. But then you add the, the flair of the likes of Neymar and uh, you have a very, very solid base for some of these flair players to, to kind of work their magic. So Brazil are the one team in South America, I think, who 
are almost club level in terms of their organization, their discipline. And, and that's something that I think can justify putting them as the South American favorites. Whether they're my overall favorites of the World Cup, I have strong doubts on that. Um, you know, as a South American enthusiast, I'm all for getting carried away. Um, but in terms of South America, they're very, very strong. Um, and I think, you know, they've, they've made this South American qualifying look quite easy. So I think perhaps that represents, reflects more on the rest of the continent. Um, but we'll talk about the other teams in a second. But yeah, for me, for Brazil, very, very impressive. And you guys, obviously, Argentina are moving in the right direction. Peter, what are your thoughts on, on Argentina and the work the manager's done there to get this team to where they are right now? Yeah, I mean, absolutely moving in the right direction. And then some, I mean, this was an Argentina team really on its knees almost after the, the, the World Cup in Russia, not just because of how badly they performed on the pitch, but real problems off it. They'd obviously gone with Jorge Sampaoli, who at the time it seemed as though, you know, a lot of people looked at it and thought, wow, the Afro have actually gone out and got a really good manager, someone who knows what he's doing and will be able to get the best out of this team. And it ended up being an absolute disaster. So when Scaloni came in, it was very much looked at as, well, he's, he's come in because he's the cheap option. <laughs> he wasn't a name. He wasn't someone with a background, a huge, hugely successful coaching background. So I think it's with that in mind that when he came in with such low expectations, he's been able to just gradually start creating his own team. And we've now seen this core of players come through that he's built the 11 around. And obviously Messi was the one that stayed there predominantly from that era before. But the likes of Paredes, the ball who have been really forever in Scaloni's plans in that starting 11, they've remained there. They've become really important. Lautaro Martinez has become the main striker, which was a real position of, you know, question marks for Argentina, who would be the main man. But he's another one who's really struck up a great relationship with Messi. And I think all those players I mentioned, the importance there is the fact that they have struck up those on the pitch relationships with Messi, because for years we've We've looked at Messi and we've looked at the fact that he's really found things difficult because he's had to do so much on his own. He's had to be the creator and the goal scorer. He's had to drop back so deep into the midfield and then try and get into the penalty box. And now he seems to have the, the trust, the, the faith and the re relationship with the likes of De Paul and Paredes in midfield that he can get the ball from them a little further up the pitch and try and instigate attacks for Argentina. And we're seeing an Argentina side that now are a lot more dangerous they're much more organised. And I think that the thing that Scaloni has done, which has been so important, is just the team spirit that's there now, from a team that, as I said, was very much on its knees only a few years ago to one which is hugely unified now. And you can see that throughout the group, even players that don't really get much on-pitch time. Um, they're very much integrated into the group. And importantly, as well, winning the Copa America, because I think that in itself has lifted this huge cloud that's hung over Argentina for so many years. You know, you have to go all the way back to 1993 for the last time they won a major trophy. It looked as if this great generation of players, the best player possibly to have ever played the game in Messi was never going to do it. And now having lifted the Copa America, there is this sense of a weight lifted. And I think we saw that as well in the celebrations from the Bolivia game last week, that 3-0 win over Bolivia in the World Cup qualifier, Messi's hat-trick, and then afterwards the celebrations with not a full Monumental, but a 30% full Monumental, and just that sense of relief. And finally, after all those years of disrespect and name-calling, Messi was able to stand there in front of his own people and as a champion. And, and I think that's really set Argentina on a course now to be able to push on, be able to rival Brazil, 
in South America and then who knows at the World Cup. Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the big takeaways from this this last round of fixtures was that that emotional homecoming, that co- continu- continuation of Messi's becoming more of a typical Argentinian showing his emotions and, and having that moment with the fans as well as beating Pele's record. You know, it, there wasn't a better way you could have done it um, against pretty forgiving opponents, we've got to, got to be said. But uh, that first goal against Bolivia was just messy at his very best, just the, the little nutmeg and, and curled into the corner. You know, it doesn't get much better than that. So um, yeah, I echo everything that Peter says there. Also the fact that those Argentinian players from the Premier League, you know, in some cases with the Spurs players, went against their club's wishes and joined up with the national team just shows how committed they are to this this national team and and that great feeling that everyone wants to be a part of it. So yeah, it's it's all aboard the Scaloneta at the moment. <laughs> yeah, we'll find out relatively soon. I imagine how they're going to decide what will happen between the Brazil and Argentina game. For anyone who was under a rock maybe for the last couple of weeks, they played five minutes before officials came onto the pitch and stopped because of those players from England for Argentina. Um, if Argentina get the win, which could be the case, then Brazil will have lost at home, in inverted commas, lost uh, for the first time in a very long time. They'll have dropped points for the first time, but it would also break Argentina even further away from the chasing pack, which I guess is a good moment to get into those group of teams that are still very much battling. And I think when we look ahead to the October qualifiers, the three games again is that jam-packed calendar. Um, I think October is really going to decide or go a long way to deciding which of those teams are going to become separated. Um, Simon, I mean, one of those sides, of course, is Colombia. They currently sit fifth level on points with Ecuador on 13 points, who are fourth just above them on goal difference. Um, but this week we saw the likes of Uruguay, Ecuador, Colombia, Paraguay all drop points, pick up a few much needed points at times as well. But it remains a very, very congested area of the table. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that last win against Chile at home for Colombia was huge. Um, there was a lot of concerns looking at some of the fixtures coming up. There's some difficult games. And we'll speak about Chile, I'm sure, in a second. But uh, Chile, uh, uh, an ageing side, a side that's not at their best, but a side that's caused Colombia a lot of problems in the past. They've got a lot of experience. They're organised. They know each other very, very well. Uh, They can be a real tough opponent for Colombia, who often suffer from kind of that lack of mental strength or that lack of organisation or that lack of keeping their heads, you could say. Um, perhaps we saw in the Copa America, Colombia losing their heads a little bit against the Argentina in the, the, the penalty shootout as well, particularly Mr. Jerry Mina. Um, but is that, <laughs> it's, it's that, that, I mean, that's something that Colombians always speak about with the national team, this jerarquia, the idea that the likes of Uruguay and Paraguay can get the results, even if they're not playing the best football. For me, one of the issues Colombia have is if they don't play very well, they probably lose. Um, whereas there are other teams who, um, either through their organization, or, you know, with the likes of Brazil and Argentina, they can maybe have an off day, but they have those big match winners and they have that, that, that reputation that can maybe help carry them at times. I think Colombia still, I think Colombia's depth in quality is, is much greater than it was 15, 20 years ago. But what they lack is that kind of confidence and that assertiveness and that mental stability. So to get that win against Chile was huge and it was a very dominant win. You know, it looked as though it might get a bit more complicated in the second half after a, really impressive first half 
But Colombia have kind of gone back to basics as well. 4-4-2, two strikers, a big guy and a little guy. <laughs> it sounds very familiar perhaps for the English listeners. <laughs> um, but Colombia really have, you know, they've, they've played it simple. They've got two wingers, Cuadrado and Luis Diaz, who are, who've got up and down and also very disciplined defensively, but provide a really quick outlet on the counter. They've got Miguel Borja, who's probably not the top, top. He hasn't had a, any career in Europe, but he's a, he's got smart movement and he's a decent finisher on his day, although he misses a few himself as well. And they played Rafael Santos Borre, who you guys will know very well from Argentina, but is very much a hardworking, collective, kind of intelligent, rather than a kind of superstar match winner. So it was a very much, and then two defense midfielders in front of the defense. Um, so it was very much focused on width, but that win against Chile was huge. You know, you can see, you know, a one-all draw away in Bolivia is not the end of the world. Um, for, for, for people new to South American football, Bolivia basically play on top of a mountain where the ball moves weird, nobody can breathe, and everyone feels like their brain's going to explode. Um, the extreme, extreme altitude makes it almost, you know, it's, it's very, very different if you watch a game in Bolivia. Uh, and I would recommend it <laughs> if, if you like Sunday League football, you know, it's... it's <laughs> It's, it's, and Bolivia are also very uh, an aggressive team as well. It's, it's very interesting to watch them play with such confidence at home. So a draw away in Bolivia, a draw against a, a decent Paraguay side isn't too bad as long as you get that win at home against Chile. So I think looking back on the three results, the three points against Chile turns what could have been a disastrous couple of weeks for Colombia into a, a decent couple of weeks worth of work. Um, obviously, there's going to be new challenges to come, but I definitely see that chasing pack of Uruguay, Ecuador, Colombia uh, as kind of the three teams, if they get things right, should go to the World Cup with Brazil and Argentina. But then there's obviously Paraguay just behind and then Chile and Peru. I think both are suffering from aging a little bit. My question for you, Tom, if you don't mind, Peter, is Uruguay, are they better with Suarez and Cavani or without Suarez and Cavani, one of Suarez or Cavani, both of them? Because we've seen the increased quality they have in midfield. They played this week without their kind of famous aging, but very good strikers. Uh, they did well. We've kind of been hoping that these talented midfielders can help lift Uruguay. But are they going to be at their best if they don't rely on these two superstar strikers and everyone in behind? You know, how do you see Uruguay moving forward? Yeah, well, I think Uruguay were definitely the big winners of, of this round, not just because they got some great results, um, especially without those talismans that you mentioned there. Um, albeit, you know, you look at the, the games they played there and, and they weren't maybe the the teams that you can really judge this future of Uruguay just yet. I think the next three fixtures, huge games against Colombia, Argentina and Brazil, that's going to really tell us the making of uh, some of these younger players in the Uruguayan side. But certainly it was, it was a big positive. Um, some of those midfielders you mentioned, Fede Valverde scored a beautiful goal. Um, he's someone who's going to be absolutely crucial to Uruguay going forward. And they even gave, you know, quite a few debuts. We saw um, Canario um, Alvarez Martinez um, scoring on his debut. Had a little bit of a tough time against Ecuador, um, which is only going to be expected when he's, when he's just making his first steps in the Uruguay national team. But it showed that there is strength and depth there. You know, you've got Maxi Gomez, You've even got Gaston Pereiro, someone who did very well for the under-20s um, and then sort of maybe not kicked on like we would imagine, but someone who came up with a really important goal. Um, you've even seen Manuel Ugarte getting a, getting a, a game there, Arambari getting uh, drafted into the side as well after really good performances in, in Spain. 
So I think there's a lot of strength and depth in Uruguay as well, a bit like with Colombia. And maybe that's why we see them on Pinnacle's World Cup bets sort of coming in around about the same bracket of um, not right up there with the favourites, but maybe dark horses. And, and I think you could put them on a on a bit of a par, but I think it's it's going to be a tough call to leave out Suarez and Cavani just yet. I mean, Cavani, as we've seen in the Premier League, is still in great nick. He's such a great reference point. And, uh, and Suarez is an absolute born winner and, and still doing well in, in Spain as well. So I think we're, we'll get the last hurrah from, from these two in Qatar. But there's definitely reasons to be positive. And um, yeah, Uruguay looking good. I think one other player that we, we need to really sort of give some credit to as well is uh, De Arisqueta, um who, who had a really good um, couple of games. He's growing into that bigger role and he's obviously been great for Flamengo, as I'm sure we'll get onto as well. And um, finally, uh, Nandes at right back. That's been an absolute revelation. And I think with him and Vina, you've finally getting away from Uruguay's tendency just to throw four centre-backs um, in a kind of Paraguay style um, and um, get some attacking width from those fullbacks, and and that's only going to be a good thing. So, yeah, I'm I'm very positive about Uruguay making it to the to the World Cup, but um, yeah, let's maybe cool our jets a little bit until after these next three uh, games. Yeah, certainly when you look at the October fixture list, Uruguay have games against Colombia at home, and then away to Argentina and away to Brazil. So certainly. A tricky three games for Uruguay and, and one which could see a shift in those positions as they currently sit third. Um, before we look at those, just the chasing two, I mean, Ecuador, uh, Simon, is a nation that we, we've seen now continuously seem to improve. They're bringing through a number of really good young players. We've seen the under-20s in recent years do really well. And we're now seeing that even more so coming through into the senior team. They sit fourth. They had a really good start to the competition. Maybe not the best week. That late defeat to Uruguay was damaging. They're in fourth level with Colombia, but still it's positive times for Ecuador. And and as you said, you wouldn't at all be surprised to see them at the World Cup in 2022. Yeah, no, I would would like them. You know, I'm trying to stay impartial here, but I'd like to see Ecuador at the World Cup because they play such aggressive, energetic, assertive football. We see the clubs uh, in the Libertadores play that similar style. I'm sure we'll talk about Barcelona, who've done well with that as well. They've got great energy, they've got good technique, and they're quite kind of spontaneous, a lot of their players are quite inventive. Uh, with, the, with the fullbacks flying forward or the wingbacks, uh, Gonzalo Plata has been a lot of fun and really impressive for the, for the Ecuador national team. Uh, Moises Caicedo is a, is a guy we love. I think uh, the midfielder who's at Brighton, hopefully he's going to settle in at Brighton, but he's a very, very talented midfielder. And Hincapi as well, the young central defender who's been very, very impressive, uh, was one of the better players at the Copa America in his position. So there's some really good youth there. There's a good system. I think with Ecuador, they'll kind of, they'll look back on previous World Cup qualifying campaigns and worry about a little bit of loss of momentum. You know, they started really strong in this one. Um, The issue has been consistency. uh, And when things started going wrong, they didn't quite kind of get things back on track. They were top of the World Cup qualifying for the previous World Cup at one point, uh, right at the top of the table. uh, And they kind of fell away quite badly. So I think for Ecuador, it's important to keep getting those points. You know, I do think they're one of the four or five best teams in South America, um, but there are teams behind them. You know, we can talk about Chile and Peru. who have got the experience. who will probably keep getting points here and there. And Paraguay as well, I think will be in most of the games that they play. So I think, I think it's those five teams who are kind of the, the teams that, that 
probably should expect to make it through. But there are three teams behind who who have that now, that experience, that organization to to keep adding points and, and uh, you know, a few slip ups here and there, they could perhaps sneak in as well. Paraguay is still very much within touching distance. They're only two points behind Colombia currently in fifth. Um, due to that very important two one win over Venezuela in their third game of the the got the window just gone. Um, so they're still there, but we're now approaching almost the crunch time for the teams below them. Peru and Chile, certainly, when you go into October, if they don't have a good week next time with those three fixtures, they could find themselves a long way away from fifth, um, depending on how results go. So, Tom, I mean, what, how do you assess Paraguay, Peru and Chile in terms of their hopes of catching the teams above them? Yeah, I think you'd, you'd rightly put them all in that same sort of bracket of maybe still within, within a decent shout, but not teams that you'd really expect to be pushing hard for for anything better than fifth at the moment. I mean, Paraguay have shown that they're solid at home. They're very good at, you know, keeping it tight, but they're just absolute draw merchants. And I can't see them providing that spark that's good enough to be better than those those five teams that are currently above them. I mean, the Romero twins for all their problems at at club level at San Lorenzo, um, the, you know, they're still producing the goods. It was quite a good round for Angel. I think he got three assists there and, and Oscar was looking good as well. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I think they're just not quite, you know, they don't have that X factor like you could say every single team above them has and some of the teams below them. Peru, out of all of them, I feel like they're the one team that's got the capability of going on a run. You know, we, we saw them do well at the Copa America there. They've got some good players. They've got a great manager. Um, yes, maybe they're they're struggling to to bring in some of the younger players, and, and it's maybe the last chance for them to put something together. But yeah, I, I think out of all of them, Peru just yeah just fill me with some more hope that they can pull something out the bag. And out of all of them, sorry to say it, Chile, but you know I think they are they are sinking. I mean, it was a tough round for them. You know, some some really tough games there with Brazil at home and away to Colombia and Ecuador, but only one scored. They've only got one more point than Bolivia, which, you know, without wanting to throw too much shade on Bolivia for Chile, that's that's got to be, you know, they've got to do better than that. So I think there was a missed opportunity against 10-man Ecuador as well. Um, and you just feel like they're kind of in between the generations at the moment. There's that great generation that that did well at the uh, under 20 um, world cup in 2007 and has been the backbone of their side but there's not really been too much in the in the past 10 years and that kind of generation is all over 30 and, and looking on its last legs and and you've got some interesting under 23 prospects Ivan Morales getting a couple of games there and he's been in great form for Colo Colo so there's there's some possibilities for for Chile going forward but I think they're just this World Cup has come at the wrong time in their cycle and and maybe we're going to see them in a better place, maybe n- not necessarily among the favourites again in, in, for the next four, four, five years or so, but maybe the one after that. So yeah, it's about rejuvenation for Chile now at this point. Um, and I, I think, yeah, realistically, it's, it's going to be a real tough ask for them to, to get into the uh, qualifying spots. Yeah, I think you're probably right in terms of we're looking at a, a Chile side that needs a makeover, really. And, and I don't think it's going to come during this qualification period. So it's going to be a tough ask for Chile to make up that ground. Um, you mentioned, as we just wrap things up, really uh, talking about the qualifiers there, that 
they're only one point better off than Bolivia. Um, well, we, sh- we should probably talk about Venezuela in that case, who are currently bottom two points worse off than uh, Bolivia. I mean, Simon, Venezuela, another one of those kind of improving nations in recent years. We've seen, again, some good young players coming through, but there's a really poor Copa America. Obviously, there was reasons for that. They were really badly affected by COVID, um, but it's been also a really poor start to World Cup qualifying, and, and they're obviously going to be disappointed when they sit their bottom two points off even Bolivia. Yeah, there was hope that they were moving in the right direction. You know, we saw an upturn of results ahead of the 2018 World Cup. We had that really interesting U20 side that got to the U20 World Cup final. You know, there was lots of positive signs. And, you know, we could make excuses initially. They were missing some key players, COVID and travel and all kinds of different reasons. But you get to a point where you kind of have to stop making excuses and think this is a bit disappointing. Um, Obviously, as well, the managers left after not being paid for over a year which is far from ideal as well. And, you know, having to make changes there. And I, you know, it's obviously, a, <laughs> I don't know what sort of person takes a job from a company who hasn't paid the, the, the predecessor for over a year. You know, you're not going to get the strongest options or candidates applying for that position. So it's difficult. Um, I, I do think there's generally um, a, a bigger pool of good quality players to choose from in Venezuela. I do think the raw materials are there to have a competitive side. Could, you know, with, with Chile not quite what they were and Peru perhaps aging a bit as well. But again, you know, this was, this was going to be the one. And now we're looking ahead to the next World Cup qualifiers and thinking maybe that will be the one. So I'm sure Venezuela will be very disappointed. I, you know, I do think there's some decent quality there, but you know they've fallen just short in 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 every game really, and you know that they should be they should be better off than they are, but it's it's a disappointing one. And there are some good young players. The squad has got a bit of quality there as well. Um, so there's positive overall news, but you know it's hard to cling to that when the the national team results are so disappointing. Yeah, narrow defeats against Peru and then against Paraguay after that defeat to Argentina last week meant it was a pretty disastrous week for Venezuela. And we head into October again with three games and really looking at, for a lot, some of those teams, Venezuela particularly, they're going to need to be looking at maximum points from some of these weeks, which looks well beyond their possibilities. So we, we do have a bit of a clearer idea, as I hope we've made clear there. We're still waiting to know exactly what happens between Brazil and Argentina. Um, but regardless, I think those two are comfortable. And then Certainly after October's three games, we'll have a much clearer idea of who will be following them. So for the time being, I think we can probably safely say two, definitely, and the rest, maybe three from three from four. Before we move on to the next bit, though, I think we do need to give a bit of love for uh, Marcelo Moreno and Martins, who's a uh, top scorer in the qualifiers so far with eight goals, which is absolutely incredible when you consider know the the troubles that Bolivia have been having as we've mentioned um so yeah that's that's one ray of shining light coming out of uh, La Paz there is is the old man still doing it and um yeah always always good to see those those heroes and cult figures in in South American football still doing the business so not not all is lost for uh, Bolivia just yet but certainly when he retires maybe it will be <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, phenomenal so far. Eight goals scored from uh, from Martins. That's obviously above Neymar and Messi, who are both just below him in the scoring records. But, I mean, if, if Marcelo Moreno Martins could end up as the top goal scorer in World Cup qualifiers for South America, at the end of it all, it would be uh, really some achievement. So you're absolutely right, Tom. Something to keep an eye on going forward, even if Bolivia 
are most likely not going to be on a plane to Qatar in 2022. Um, we can move on from, of course, World Cup qualifiers to what's coming up this month. And aside from those World Cup qualifiers, of course, we have the Copa Libertadores, Copa Sudamericana coming back right at the business end of the tournament. The semi-finals are upon us. And, well, we have some huge, huge matches coming up. The domination of the Brazilian clubs is something which no doubt we're going to talk about. And we see that very clearly in the Copa Libertadores, of course, the premier competition in South America, uh, where we have Flamengo, the 2019 champions who thrashed Olympia. We mentioned a couple of their players already in talking about the national teams. They play the one team that aren't Brazilian still left in it, Barcelona of Ecuador, who knocked out Fluminense, one of the few Brazilian teams, just to avoid us getting a clean sweep of Brazilian clubs in the last four. And in the other half of the draw, Palmeiras, the current champions who defeated another Brazilian team in Sao Paulo, play Atletico Mineiro, who knocked out River Plate, the last of the Argentine candidates. So three from four from Brazil. We have Flamengo as overwhelming favourites to knock out Barcelona, who are massive, massive underdogs. When you certainly look at Pinnacle's odds for the semifinals, the Palmeiras, Atletico Mineiro semifinal, far more even. Palmeiras, slight favourites in that one. Um, but Tom, I'll come to you first. We have two very intriguing semifinals. The big boys from Brazil are there in terms of the two most recent champions, plus a stacked Atletico Mineiro side. And then probably the team that the neutrals around South America are kind of left rooting for now in Barcelona. Um, but it's, it's a fascinating two matches coming up. Yeah, big time. I think both games have got so much intrigue and interest. I think it's hard to draw, tear your eyes away from Atletico Mineiro versus Palmeiras. You know, they're top, uh, top and second in the Brazilian league right now. Uh, Mineiro got a, a good win against um, them, which will be interesting to see how that affects the, uh, the way they play each other. But yeah, it's, it's it's so hard to pick a winner between these two because a lot of focus is going to be on on Mineiro with the fact they've got Hulke and and Diego Costa up front, um, as well as all manner of other talents that we you know you mentioned there, um, and the fact they beat Boca and River on their way. So it really feels like the momentum's with them not only in the league but also in the Libertadores, and you know, Palmeiras reigning champions they've they've shown how how good they are we've seen that it's tough to get repeat winners in this competition um and their league form has been a little bit up and down lately um so you kind of wonder whether maybe um Mineiro might be a, a a good bet for for those looking to, to to maybe pick a winner here but um i it's so hard to to pick um uh, between the two and and I think we might see as we did kind of in, in last year's final a, a more pragmatic Palmeiras one who maybe looks to hit on the counter but both sides are so good in defence that it's it's going to be tight and it might not be lots of goals but um, I think that's going to be I think the winner of this could well go on and, and win the whole thing so yeah it's that that's probably the game that I'm most intrigued about but um Flamengo have, have timed their run quite nicely. And, and obviously, as, as you said, I think we all want someone to break up the Brazilian dominance there. And, and, and Barcelona have shown that they're, they're a tough cookie to crack. So yeah, um, Flamengo, the more obvious favourites in that one. And 
you think that they've just got so much attacking talent there that it's going to be key, it's going to be tough for Barcelona to keep them at bay. But um, yeah, it's it would be it would be nice, and I'll certainly be um, hoping for for a Barcelona in the final doing what their their Spanish Catalan com, um, compatriots well not compatriots counterparts uh, can't can't do at the moment so someone's got to fly the flag for them at least anyway <laughs> yeah certainly probably the closest Barcelona are going to get to a major uh, continental competition um but Simon I mean they are massive underdogs when you look at those odds up against a Flamengo side when you look at we mentioned Gabby Gold before when we were talking about maybe not being the the guy that could lead Brazil to a World Cup, but he's certainly the guy that could lead Flamengo to a Copa Libertadores when you look at how many goals he scores in South America. Derasquieta, we mentioned, now shining for Uruguay, but we've seen him shining for Flamengo. So is there value there, do you think, in terms of thinking Barcelona could overcome Flamengo? No, I, I love Barcelona. Um, the thing is, like, Flamengo are going to dominate possession. Like Barcelona can play, they can pass the ball, they're, 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 they're good at retaining possession, but Barcelona are most effective at pouncing on attacks, countering quickly, pressing. They're, they're very good at deciding when to press. They're not one of these teams that just chases the ball. They get themselves really nicely set up, and when the ball's there to be won, they win it. Look, you know, David, David Luis is going off to Flamengo as well, and he's going to, I think, absolutely love his time in Brazil. He's going to have all of the time in the world to ping the ball about um, in the Brazilian league. And against most teams in South America, he's going to find it very comfortable. But I think if there's one team to make him sweat a little bit or, or put him under some pressure, I think it's Barcelona. I think they can, you know, if, if someone's going to force an error from David Luiz, and I really don't expect many because I think he's a top player and I think he'll have more time generally in South America. But if anyone's going to force an error from David Luiz, I think it could be this Barcelona team. So I'm trying to give you guys some hope. There's, there's a lot of pace out wide. They've got some good. They've got some good playmakers there as well to make things happen. Um, if <laughs> if they can not concede too many, I think they'll score uh, a goal or two. And I think they're well set up to maybe snatch something away in Brazil. And that away goal could be huge and could be really important. So I'm trying to convince you guys. I don't know if it's working, but Flamengo are, are in South American terms as good as it gets on paper, and they tend to play really good football. They've got so many weapons in attack. They've got a very very prolific goal scorer in South American football. So lots of reasons to think Flamengo are going to do it. But just maybe, just maybe Barcelona, just maybe, I believe, I believe in, in these guys. And, and they're a fun team. Also, that stadium in Guayaquil is, is my favourite in South America. Bright yellow, all the fans in yellow as well. It's, it's a bit weird. There's a big long bit sticking out behind the goal. It's, yeah, check out the, the stadium. It's, it's a thing of beauty. So uh, lots of things to like about Barcelona. Um, but Flamengo are, are Galacticos. They're superstars. They've got internationals throughout the team. It's... It's almost not fair. So uh, lots of reasons to be enthusiastic. And if you guys are feeling brave, uh, maybe put some money on Barcelona and enjoy the ride because they'll definitely give it a decent go, I think. And I think it'll be interesting. But Flamengo could absolutely smash them at the back. So we'll have to see. Yeah, I mean, we've seen Flamengo do that to a number of teams when they, they suddenly just go up a gear and, and before you know it, you can be two, three goals behind. The tie can be over. We've seen them do it, not just in this tournament, but obviously as only two years ago when they, lifted the tournament, even if then it was somewhat dramatic fashion, two very late goals to overturn the deficit and defeat River. But they've been there, they've done that, and you would expect them to be able to overcome Barcelona. Um, in terms of teams that have been there and done that, I think that's kind of the strength as well of Palmeiras. Um, we look at a team there that in some ways they do have a, a huge amount of attacking talent, but 
you almost feel like at times they play with a little bit of the break on it. And it's this kind of safety first approach. And then when they need to, they go up a gear, they get the goals that they need, and then they're happy just to, to, to see it out again. Um, it's maybe not the most exciting. And, and, and actually, when you look at, they've scored a lot of goals in this tournament, but there's still a sense that sometimes when they come up against really good teams, you always feel like there's a bit more from Palmeiras. So I don't know whether that could be um, a feature when you go forward. I mean, Tom, you were saying that maybe there's value there for Atletico Mineiro. Um, we saw Atletico Mineiro much the better team against the best that Argentina had to offer this year. Um, but do you think they're more than equipped to be able to prevent us seeing back-to-back winners yet again in the Libertadores? Yeah, I think they're they're right up there with the, you know the best in this tournament. So I think... Palmeiras have got a really, really tough um, ask on their hands. I mean, yes, Mineiro have had a little bit of luck al- along the way with those those VAR goals um, ruled out against Boca. And I think they are maybe the type of, uh, of team, pa- Palmeiras, that is, that Mineiro don't enjoy playing against as much because they are going to be so defensively resolute. They're not going to come out and allow... Um, Minedo to, to attack on the break that they do so well there. Because again, we're looking at a manager in Kuka who you look at his Santos team last year getting to the final. He's won the tournament with Minedo before, back when Ronaldinho was playing for them. And he's a guy who, very much like Ferreira Palmeiras, is a pragmatic, safety first kind of coach, but will just turn it on in, in moments and, and can really destroy teams and, and has shown that maybe with this array of talent that he didn't necessarily have at Santos, he can do a little bit more with it. So I feel like there's a there's a narrative there of maybe Kuka's redemption um, and, and doing it again for Minedo. So, um, you know, aside from all the, the the stats and the tactics, you know, I think there's always the mystica of the, the tournament. And, and I think there's a bit of that with Minedo um, I think it'll also make for maybe a more entertaining final if, if they get there. Um, obviously, the switch to w- the one-off final has tended to see teams more play not to lose. And, and the last couple of uh, occasions, they've been tight games with, with late winners. So I wouldn't be surprised if we saw something like that again. But if you had Mineiro versus either one of Flamengo or, or Barcelona in the final, I, th- I think on paper that would be quite a fun watch. Yeah, so we, we have those semifinals. Palmeiras against Atletico Minero. The first leg is on Tuesday, September the 21st. The return leg the following Tuesday, the 28th. And Flamengo Barcelona on Wednesday, September 22nd. And then the second leg on Wednesday, the 29th. Two big, big games. If you haven't watched the Copa Libertadores before, no better time to jump into it than at the semifinal stage. And certainly four teams that will be very well, maybe not evenly matched in one of the cases, but we hope we've laid out enough intrigue there to make you want to watch Flamengo and Barcelona as well. Um, but at the same time, we also have the semi-finals of, and I'm contractually obliged to say, the Europa League equivalent in South America, the Copa Sudamericana. Um, and we have, again, there a little bit more variation. It's not quite so Brazil-heavy, only two of the four teams. Um, but, but some intriguing matchups there. We have Peñarol, the Uruguayan Giants. They play Atletico Paranaense, one of the Brazilian teams, and then one of the newer Brazilian teams that maybe people aren't quite so familiar with, but one of the Red Bull family, Red Bull Black and Chino, taking on Libertad of Paraguay. Um, Simon, 
as I said, two or two intriguing semi-finals there. Um, Red Bull, one of the the stories without question of this Copa Sudamericana, given their rise, given how well they've been doing, um, and they come in as favourites against Libertad, despite Libertad's great history in Commonwealth competition. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's kind of two up and coming Brazilian clubs who've done things uh, very effectively, very grown to become kind of quite progressive teams in their style of play. You know, they've become real forces in Brazil, really competitive against two of like the oldest, most traditional clubs in South America. So it's kind of a clash in styles, clash in approach. Uh, it's an interesting one. I think, I think Bragantino have, have that quality, have that, that creativity, that, that, that kind of that pace in attack. Whereas Libertad are quite an efficient team. Um, so it's going to be a real interesting one. You know, the first, the first leg over there in Brazil, I think if Libertad are going to try and keep it tight, they might snatch at something here and there on the counter. They've got some, you know, some interesting young players as well. So it'll be an interesting game. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going to be a really, really fascinating one because it really is kind of that young, that, that new club that's bringing something very new to the table in their recruitment, in terms of building their style of play against one of the great traditional powers of South American football. You know, I think you could say the same for the second tie as well, Peñarol against Paranaense. Paranaense is a side that's, again, risen to be a, a real player in the continental competitions as well. So it's going to be interesting. Uh, Tom, what did you think about Libertad and their chances against Bragantino? Yeah, I think they're going to struggle, to be honest. Bragantino, from early in this competition, I think we all pegged as quite good um, bets for for the, the, this title. And and I, I really think that they're, they're just kind of that perfect Sudamericana side in terms of up and coming, doing things a bit clever, a little bit sm- smarter than other clubs around them. And we've seen it in years gone by with Independiente del Valle, Defensa y Justicia. The Sudamericana is the tournament to watch for those up and coming teams who, who are going to make an impact in the Libertadores in, in, in the next few years, I think. So Brangantino, obviously they've got that Red Bull money behind them, which is, you know, not to everyone's uh, taste, um, both, both the drink itself and, you know, the way they operate things on the pitch. But, you know, they've got such a great batch of young players, even the fact they've lost Claudinho selling him for, uh, across to Zenit. Um, they've still got players like Artur. They've managed to bring in Bruno Prachedes across from Internacional, which is a, a great, great signing for a club like Bragantino to pick up one of the most talented young Brazilian midfielders in the league. Um, a real statement of intent from them. Um, so I, I think Bragantino might make it a Brazilian clean sweep in the in the Copper um, titles this year. But, you know, hold, hold, a, hold out for Peñarol, who what went from a potentially d- disastrous year in the fact that they failed to qualify for the Libertadores uh, for, the, for the first time in, in ages, despite never really making it out of the group stage. Um, uh, you know, they've, they've now gone on this great run. They've got these fantastic young players. Uh, mentioned Alvarez uh, Martinez, who's um, just a ton of goals, um, both in the league and in the Sudamericana. 20-year-old striker who looks like the next big thing. And Facundo Torres, who had a great uh, Copa America with Uruguay as well. Um, they, you know, two of the young, bright stars of Uruguayan football. But, you know, they've also got strength and depth throughout. You know, someone like Agustin Conobio has, has proven um, himself as a, as a real excellent signing. They've got um, La Quintana, who they picked up from 
um, rele- relegated defensor. Um, and even they've got Nico Gaitan joining up with the squad as well. So there's, you know, there's, there's a lot to like about this um, Peñarol side. And, and I, I feel like if anyone is going to ch- uh, challenge Bragantino, then it might be the Uruguayans who are looking, uh, I think it's 10 years since they got to the, uh, the final of the Libertadores or, or certainly the semifinals. I can't, can't quite remember how far they got in that competition, but you know, they've, they've had a pretty bad decade ever since and, and they're finally putting a good res- uh, run together. So that would be um, a fantastic story, I think. And um, uh, yeah, one that I'll certainly be looking out for. Yeah, Peñarol have been one of the form teams throughout, dominated their group, scored a huge amount of goals, made pretty light work in the knockout stages as well to get to where they are. They certainly seem on paper to be the favourites against Atletico Paranaense, who, you know, in the end, on aggregate, will look fairly comfortable maybe against um, Liga de Quito. But for long periods of that tie, they looked under pressure, made life difficult for themselves, certainly. Um, Simon, do you, do you think we could see any upsets in the, the Sudamericano or are you expecting to be Red Bull Bragantino against Peñarol? Yeah, I, I like Peñarol, as Tom mentioned, these young players. So, you know, I, I do fancy Peñarol. You know, I, Libertad could do something, you know, that, that Paraguayan spirit. I don't know, I, I'm trying to persuade myself that the Brazilians aren't going to dominate. I, I, don't, know, I don't know if it's working. Um, but, you know, I, I could see them maybe doing something. But, yeah, it, I think that's probably a, a fair assessment of where these teams are right now on paper. But who knows? Copa Sudamericana, unpredictable. We'll have to see what happens. Yeah, and I think just before we leave the, the topic of, of Libertadores and Sudamericana, then going forward into 2022, this year we're, we're talking here about that Brazilian dominance. Um, it's been an increasing topic of conversation as people are looking at the finances, the players that the Brazilians are able to bring in, the squads that they have. I mean, we, we see it every week in the Libertadores and the Sudamericana, the type of players that some of these Brazilian sides are able to bring off the bench. But um just before we go, I just wanted to ask you whether you thought, you know, this is something which we're only going to see deepen over in the coming years, whether this is going to be something regularly seen in the Libertadores. Are we going to see semifinals, Sudamericana and Libertadores almost exclusively made up of Brazilian teams? Yeah, I mean, I think, to be honest, Brazilian sides have been punching under their weight for so long that this is almost like a return to what the normal state of play should be um, based on their financial superiority. So in, certainly it's not a surprise. And certainly I think with this longer Libertadores format that we've had um, over the past few years, it's that's only going to favour the Brazilian sides um, as well. So I think the, you know, those shorter tournaments allowed for a team from, well, almost anywhere to go on an, an amazing run, have that momentum. Whereas now you can bring in reinforcements. And again, that's only going to help the, the bigger clubs. I mean, even the Argentinian clubs that we've seen do well in recent years have, have tended to be Boca and River, you know, the, the, the big clubs there with occasionally, you know, getting someone um, a little bit random in there like Barcelona. So yeah, unfortunately, I think it probably is going to be the case, but you know, the beauty of the Libertadores is we rarely get repeat winners we usually get a fairly rotating cast and and there is strength and depth around the continent that can challenge them if if they're not quite at it but um yeah certainly certainly feels like it's going that way at least anyway yeah for me i think it's uh it's interesting because 
basically, yeah, as, as Tom said, you know, the Brazilian team should win. <laughs> like it, it's, it's, you know, it's like the Champions League, you know, we've had such unpredictability, which has been great. Um, but I think one of Brazil's uh, issues has been a lack of managers, a lack of ideas um, in terms of these clubs. Um, and, you know, we've seen the impact of bringing in a, in a couple, you know, a Portuguese coach at Flamengo and how that suddenly helped them use all of these great resources they have to, to provide a really organized, effective team. So I think Brazil are starting to be a little bit more open in their mentality, not only in terms of ideas, but also in their recruitment. You know, Brazil have always had their pick of pretty much every player in South America, um, and they've rarely kind of taken advantage of that. But we're seeing them buying up some of the better players elsewhere in South America at a young age as well, um, which is something they can do. I mean, to put it in context, um, there are Brazilian players who earn more in a couple of weeks than entire Venezuelan squads earn in a year. It literally is Sunday league teams, you know, uh, league two teams up against Manchester City in terms of finances, some of these games. So, um, you know, I'm I'm still hoping that Brazil continue to mess it up, at least on occasions. It's great to see Brazilian superstar teams performing to their best. But, you know, we also love a, you know, Venezuelan team picking up a win here and there. And I think in South America, there are so many more variables as well um, in terms of these games. Obviously, fans are going to have an impact. You know, if you go away to a, to a big, to a tough game, you know, there'll be, you know, a bus driver will get lost on his way to the hotel and send you on a four hour detour around the stadium. You know, the fans will be outside singing until four in the morning, you know, the, the showers won't work. You know, and then you get onto the pitch and, you know, the time wasting, the fouling. For me, sometimes I watch the Champions League and I'm like, are you guys even trying? <laughs> you know, you know, you're barely cheating. Like, do you, you just accepting you're going to lose against Real Madrid or whatever, guys? Come on. So there are, there are always going to be those factors. You add in altitude, you add in the fans, the intensity of the games. Uh, that's always going to help spur on the unexpected. But I do think Tom's right in that Brazil just should have been better for the last 10 years and if they start realizing their potential then it's going to be very very difficult for anyone to to compete but we shall see we shall see and just when you think you've got them beat the the health authorities health authorities will come on the pitch and and help them out so there's always that to contend with as well <laughs> yeah I mean, that was certainly was just another chapter in a long list of instances we've seen rec- almost regularly in the Copa Libertadores certainly so if you if you haven't watched the Libertadores or the Sudamericana then um, and you like those kind of incidents dogs on the pitch and some of the stuff that Simon just mentioned in terms of the teams getting to the stadium um, then certainly it's a tournament well worth watching and it does make it all the more interesting unpredictable and exciting to watch um, before we uh, wrap things up for this first episode, we thought we'd just look at one of the South American nations, their domestic leagues, um, in a little bit more detail. So we we're going to talk about Argentina. Uh, they're in the midst of their league season at the moment. It's a 26-team top flight. Everyone plays each other just the once rather than home and away. And they're currently 11 games into that. So about the halfway point. Um, and I'll come to you first, Tom, really, because when we're talking about Argentine football, obviously we, we all know the the... the the famous historic club, Boca, River, um, Independiente, Racing and San Lorenzo, the, one of the so-called big five in Argentina. But at the moment, we're seeing some of the other clubs leading the way. We have Tejeres from Córdoba and Lanús as the two leaders, Estudiantes de la Plata just beneath them. Um, and it's been a strange start to the season in Argentina. A lot of teams dropping points all over the place. And it's difficult at this halfway point really to say where you think the title might end up. Yeah, there's been a real lack of consistency, but I think we are starting to see some of the the better teams uh, 
right now at least anyway, even if they're not the biggest names for, for those who are new to Argentinian football. Um, but yeah, they're sort of beginning to show their their quality. And, and certainly as you mentioned there, Lanús and Dajeres, two of the better run, I would say, teams at the moment, teams who've got a clear identity, they've got stability clearly as well. Um, you know, Lanús, for example, they've you know, apart from Gajal, I think uh, Zuali has been there one of probably the longest in in the league, and um, you know they've got a fantastic blend of of experience and youth with Pepe Sand up front, forty one years young and still banging the goals in, and and lots of great young players, and they've really leaned heavily on their academy as as a lot of the smaller Argentinian clubs need to do. Um, Tajeres as well. You know, they've been very good at not only bringing players through themselves, but recognising those good young players at either other smaller clubs or or even in the second division and getting them in nice and early. And, and they just seem to have a, as soon as they sell one talent on, they've got another one waiting to, to go. So they're two teams that I think are really interesting. And um, yeah, for, for our listeners who, who might not know as much about Argentinian football, um, names that you could probably stick a few pennies on to uh, to get the results at the moment but um yeah it's you always think that over this longer season that the, the bigger teams are, are going to prevail and and as you said there are a few of the, a few of the big names waiting i mean out of the out of the grandes peter do you think there's who do you think is the best bet for the title i think when you look at the table as things stand and as we record river have a game in hand um so they could potentially put themselves right in amongst those top three, Tejeres, Lanús, and then Estudiantes. You'd probably say River. I mean, I think the other thing to bear in mind with River is a team that for a number of years we've been looking at as Libertadores candidates, and it's been Marcelo Gajardo's trademark almost of making River play perennial contenders in the Libertadores, but he's never won a league title. Um, now, with them being out of the Libertadores quite early, he's got the rest of this year to focus on that. Potentially as well, the end of his contract much of the talk about being this is the end of the Marcelo Gallardo era at River Plate, which will be a massive moment in the club's history when they have to find the guy to replace the most successful manager in their history. Um, but you wouldn't put it past Gallardo and River to end that run with a league title. And they're certainly within touching distance. Um, they've shown a lot of inconsistency. It's not the Riverside as strong as it has been in recent years when they've won the Libertadores. But it's still a dangerous riverside with with the strength there that's more than capable of going toe to toe with any team in Argentina. So I think they're probably the most likely candidates um, from the Grandes. But again, in part, that's also quite a low bar because we're talking about at the moment the Big Five being quite a weak big Big Five. We're talking about a Racing Club under an interim manager who they don't really concede any goals, but they also don't score any goals either. So. There's another good tip. If you want to bet on Racing's results, go with a nil-nil <laughs> or at least definitely under two and a half goals. Um, Independiente are, are, have all sorts of problems off the pitch, financially ruined, regularly losing players and just having to refill with their own academy players. San Lorenzo, likewise, financially ruined <laughs> and with a rather weak team. And then that leaves Boca Juniors, who ordinarily you'd say, they're the team that is always there or thereabouts domestically, but we're looking at Boca in a real period of transition. An uh, inexperienced manager promoted from the reserves to take over after a poor run of results. And 
gaping holes in the squad still where you say, I'm not sure they're, they're there yet. They don't have a real natural goal scorer in the team. Um, and so that they still look some way short. The good news is for then the likes of Lanús and Tejeres, Estudiantes, there's a real opportunity there to go and win a league title, which would be huge for those other clubs that don't necessarily have that long list of domestic titles that the likes of Boca and River do. So it's going to be a very interesting title run, I think, this year in Argentina. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, you know, I don't watch Argentine football regularly, but I always enjoy seeing the teams in the Libertadores. And whenever I tune in, you know, it's a great variety of stadiums, great kits. Argentine teams have great iconic kits up there. You know, it's, for me, it's like Brazil or Argentine club kits are the most interesting in South America. A lot of classic designs, a lot of big teams as well, teams that you guys are very familiar with. Uh, so for me, and, and this is the atmospheres as well, even some of the smaller teams get, get great atmospheres. And I think that's going to be something to look at as well as fans begin coming back to the stadiums, uh, how that impacts upon games and, and how, it, you know, how it brings such fresh energy to games as well. We saw some of that in the World Cup qualifiers, um, how the fans did really have a big impact. And, and I think they have no greater impact than with Argentini- Argentinian clubs. I remember seeing so many Tucumán fans here in Medellín when they were playing in the Libertadores. And they were, they were absolutely loving life over here. Um, and, and uh, yeah, I think Argentine, Argentine clubs as well, for me, something that's interesting is how they kind of set the tone for the fan experience. The, the songs, a lot of them come from Argentina. Um, a lot of the fan kind of participation in games, the, the flares and all that kind of stuff, that kind of begins in Argentina. So it's interesting to see the impact Argentine football has had around the continent both on the field, you know, here in Colombia, we love a number 10 and a lot of that comes from Argentina as well, uh, as well as off the field in terms of the songs, the overly romantic songs about dying for your team and all this kind of stuff. And it's, 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 it's funny when you hear the originals and they're like romantic ballads and they've taken out, you know, you for Boca. It's like, it's always, it's always good fun. Yeah, absolutely. A, a great all-round experience watching Argentine football. As you, as you say, hopefully we will have supporters back in the stadium sooner rather than later. That's very much the hot topic at the moment in Argentina. And hopefully they're talking about October being the month that at some point we'll have some percentage of stadiums full. Um, so that's something to look out for. Um, as is, of course, this month, got a huge amount of World Cup qualifiers coming up. We have those semifinals in both the Libertadores and the Sudamericana. Argentine league doesn't stop at all. It's going to keep going through October. So in one month, we'll certainly have a lot more to look back on as we look back on those World Cup qualifiers. And of course, we'll be looking ahead to the two marquee finals in club football. Um, So thanks to Tom. Thanks to Simon uh, for joining me, talking us through an interesting month in South America, as it always is. And uh, we'll be back hopefully very soon with another update. Um, You can find all the latest odds and betting insight on Pinnacle.com, plus plenty of content on at Pinnacle on Twitter and Pinnacle.betting on Instagram. There's plenty of other sport coming your way, including the Champions League, Ryder Cup and more from the NFL. But please gamble responsibly. Odds correct at the time of recording. 